Hello, and welcome to Hillcrest To Go. I'm your host, John Parker. Today, Dr. Tom Goodman shares a message titled, Near the Cross of Jesus. First, our scripture reading, followed by an important message from Dr. Tom Goodman. Today's scripture reading comes from John 19, verses 25 through 30. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and a disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to their disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soak a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God bless the reading of his word. We're in a summertime series through the last four chapters of the Gospel of John. These chapters deal with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And today, as Nora read to us, we heard the last words of Jesus before he died. And it's interesting to uh, recount the last words of famous people before they died. Leonardo da Vinci died saying, I've offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. His uh, contemporary Michelangelo said, I'm still learning. The famous explorer Marco Polo said, I have not told half of what I saw. Winston Churchill's last words were, I'm bored with it all. That's similar to what Elvis Presley's last words were. He said, I hope I haven't bored you. Well, those were the words he said in public. Well, those were the last words that closed off what turned out to be his, his last concert before he died. In private, his last words were, I'm going to the bathroom to read. <laughs> now, since I'm a bit of a word nerd, I like what Dominique uh, Buhort's last words were. He was a very precise rhetorician and a grammar man and, uh, and uh, French. He was a writer in the 1600s, and before he died, he said, I'm about to or I'm going to die. Either expression is correct. <laughs> Blue singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Todd Beamer's last words were, let's roll. And Steve Jobs, uh, the, the last words were, the founder of Apple, his last words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Jesus' last words are recorded for us here in this passage, John chapter 19. And he calls attention to three things that Jesus says. Now, uh, if you've ever been in churches right around Easter time, sometimes the pastor will do a sermon series or an individual sermon on uh, the seven last words of Jesus. And that's because uh, the number seven shows up because when you harmonize together everything that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all say about the events on the cross, you find seven things that Jesus said. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they didn't contradict each other, but they did have different things that they wanted to highlight. For their purposes, they had different things they wanted to feature. 
And so when we turn to Matthew and, and Mark, it's only Matthew and Mark that tell us one thing that Jesus said. He quoted a psalm, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then only Luke, for his purposes, gives us three more things that Jesus said. He looked at the soldiers who had nailed him to the cross, and Luke says that he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he turned to a man next to him who was dying on a cross next to him, a man who had placed his faith in Jesus, and he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. And then it was Luke who told us that the last thing that Jesus said as he breathed out his last breath was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then John, in the Gospel of John, tells us three more things that only John tells us. Again, not a contradiction in what the other persons have said, but they just had different things they wanted to focus on for their purposes. And for John's purposes, he focuses on three other things that we only see in the Gospel of John. It's touching to me to see how brief, how uh, economical these words are. John, as we see, was an eyewitness himself to the crucifixion. And Crucifixion was a painful way to go, and it, was, it, it contorted the body in such a way that it was difficult to breathe. And, and so you see Jesus breathing out, just sort of gasping out these short phrases, these short sentences. He turns to John and Mary at the foot of the cross, as we'll see, and he says, Behold your son, behold your mother. And then he says, I'm thirsty. Actually, it was just one word in Greek, thirsty. And then he issues again one word in Greek, finished. Now these are words that we need to pay attention to as we are near the cross of Jesus. You know, uh, in this uh, gospel book, the author doesn't reveal his name. We've seen this before. He just refers to himself as another disciple or in several instances, the disciple Jesus loved. Now the Bible tells us, we saw this several weeks ago, that when Jesus was arrested, all his apostles, all his disciples abandoned him. But we saw a couple of weeks ago that it was John and Simon Peter who showed up at the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus was being uh, interrogated. But then, according to the Gospel of Luke, after uh, Simon Peter denies that he ever knew Jesus, he denied it three times, he left the, the courtyard weeping and broken. And now it's just the Apostle John. Of all the men that Jesus had chosen to be his 12 apostles to launch his new Israel, there was only one left, and the Apostle John, according to uh, the, the, the Gospel of John, with a handful of women, was there at the foot of the cross, and near the cross, John heard things from Jesus about his dying. You know, there's some life-changing things you hear only when you are near the cross of Jesus. I want you to think about this. We are shaped by whatever we choose to be nearby and what we hear there. And so... We choose the social media influencers we want to be nearby. We choose the musicians or the novelists or the actors and actresses that we want to be nearby. And we hear words from all of these different places we choose to be nearby. And these words shape our worldview. These words shape our understanding of what normal behavior is like. These words leave us either inspired or bitter either excited or depressed or anxious. But as we get near to the cross of Jesus, we hear words he said in his dying that help us with our living. Near the cross, we hear about a family to belong to, an inspiration to rise to, and salvation to come to. 
You see these points in your sermon notes. Your sermon notes are inside your bulletin. Let's write this first point down. Near the cross of Jesus, we hear about a family to belong to. Take a look again at verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Now here he is in the agony of crucifixion, and he's still paying attention to his mother's needs. It's very likely that his mother at this time was a widow. We assume this because after the references to Joseph, the husband of Mary, we see those references in the Christmas stories in Matthew and in Luke. We don't get any reference to Joseph ever again. And it was very likely then that he died, that Mary had been widowed. And Jesus, the eldest son, was responsible for taking care of her. And now as he is dying, he turns her care over to somebody else. And he turns to the apostle John and he said, here is your mother. And he says to his mother, here is your son. And from that time on, this passage says, John took her into his house. Now, if Jesus asked you to take care of his mother, most of us would probably, in knee-jerk reaction, say, of course I'll do that. But don't say it too easily or too quickly until you understand what you are responding to. Because Jesus tells us today to do this very same thing. Are we doing it? Now, and there's this passage in Mark chapter, I'm sorry, in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus was teaching in a house. And the crowd was crowded in so tightly in that house. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers showed up, they could not get to Jesus in the house. And somebody informed Jesus that uh, his mother and brothers were outside wanting to see him. And what do we see in Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12, verses 40, uh, 49 and 50, pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brother, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus at the cross said to John and Mary, take care of each other. Jesus says to you and me today, look around you. These are my brothers and my sister and my mother. Take care of each other. So how are we doing at taking care of Jesus's family? I wonder, why do you think that Jesus put Mary in charge of somebody who wasn't a blood relative? I mean, Mary had other sons and other daughters. You know that, don't you? Jesus had other earthly brothers. We even know their names, at least the names of the brothers. We see in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, we read their names were James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Those last two names especially wasn't a reference to Simon, the one who denied him, and Judas, the one who betrayed him. These were common, ordinary names at the time. But here's the point. Why didn't Jesus just assume that these men would take over the care of Mary as he was dying? Well, we read in John chapter 7 that these brothers of Jesus did not believe in him, at least not at that time. They were not following him. They did not have their trust in him like Mary did. And so he wanted Mary to be in the care of, be in the trust of somebody who believed in him like she believed in him. Now, what should this tell us? This should tell us that the most important relationships in your life are with those who believe in Jesus like you believe in Jesus. 
ahead of your nationality, ahead of your race, ahead of your political persuasion, ahead of all of those things, the most important relationship you're to have is with those who believe in Jesus and care for Jesus like you believe in Jesus and care for Jesus. And that means that we need to spend time with each other. And we need to include each other in our lives. And we need to invite each other over to our houses. And we need to materially take care of each other. And this is especially important when the culture around us becomes a place of no support for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Around the world, when somebody becomes a believer in Jesus, in some instances, in some cultures, they're cast out of their family, they're ostracized by their culture. It's very difficult for them to find a job or get ahead in a, in a job. Some of us are concerned that that may well be the trend or the direction of our own culture here. And when that's the case, then you need to be especially taking care of those who love Jesus and are trying to follow Jesus like you are because they're not getting any support from anywhere else except from within the family of God. And so one of the things we learn as we're, as we're near the cross of Jesus, one of the things we hear him say is, I'm bringing you into a family that you can belong to. Here's a second thing I want you to write down. Near the cross of Jesus, we hear about an inspiration to rise to. Near the cross of Jesus, we hear about an inspiration to rise to. Look at John 19, verses 28 and 29 again. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Now, there's so much going on in these verses. And every time I get to this holy scene, I see more and more things to look at, more and more truths to plunge down into. But for today, I just want us to sit awestruck in front of one truth that we learn from this passage. Jesus became everything like we are so that we might become like him. He became in every way like us so that we might become like him. The Bible tells us that the incarnation, the arrival of Jesus on this earth, was the creator himself coming to visit his creation in person. And that means that if we're going to be faithful to the Bible, we, we see within the pages of the Bible that Jesus is everything it means to be God and everything it means to be human at the same time. Now, I've taught this truth and a lot of other truths across the years, and non-believers and believers react to this truth in different ways. They struggle with different halves of that statement I just made. And so non-believers struggle with this understanding of Jesus as divine. But believers sometimes struggle with this understanding of Jesus as truly, really human, experiencing humanity in every way like, like we ordinary people do. We, we, we maybe acknowledge theologically, you know, doctrinally, we acknowledge that Jesus was the Son of Man, that he was human. But in, in the back of our mind, we feel somehow that he, he was really kind of above it all, all the things that we struggle with and all the things that we experience. He didn't experience it in every way like we do. But you've got to understand that that's more of a Hindu way of understanding the divinity as opposed to the Christian way of understanding the divinity. In Hindu teachings, there are several stories where the gods 
uh, enter into human experience and kind of take on the guise or presentation of a human being. But in that instance, they're just sort of dressing up as human beings, like you and I maybe dress up on, a, uh, on Halloween or something to go out to a party. Uh, and the Greek and Roman mythologies understood uh, the divinity in that way too. When, when the gods or goddesses kind of took on the guise of human beings, they weren't really, they were just pretending to be human beings. But in the book, uh, books of the New Testament, we read very consistently that Jesus was the creator visiting his creation in person. He experienced everything it means to be human. And that means his stomach grumbled at dinner time. That means that his feet blistered when he walked. That means that he sneezed at pollen. And that means that when he went through crucifixion, he experienced it in exactly the same way that you and I would experience it if we went through crucifixion. He got thirsty as you and I would get thirsty on crucifixion. I want you to think about the thirst that he felt. At this point, it was early afternoon, maybe mid-afternoon. The last drink of any sort of liquid he had taken was the night before when he took part in Passover with his apostles and drank the Passover wine. Then after that, according to the other Gospels, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there, as he prayed, he sweat like drops of blood falling to the ground. He was already beginning to expend moisture. And then he was arrested, and he was put into a dungeon overnight. Pilate, the Roman governor, had his back flayed with, uh, with, with cords, with whips, uh, when it came time for him to die, they gave him the cross, or at least the horizontal part of the cross, and he carried it from his prison through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha. Uh, there he was nailed to the cross and continued to shed liquid from the thorn pricks, from the crown of thorns in his brow, from the beating that he had taken, from the nails that went into his hands and his feet. And here he was exposed for hours to the sun. He was thirsty like you and I would have been thirsty. But it's, it's, it's in this very truth that we find something that we need to cling to and hold to. He entered into everything it means to be human to the point of being thirsty in this passage. He became like us in every way for this purpose so that we might learn to be like him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, take a look at this. I've read it to you before. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. As we're going to see in just a moment, he was doing so much more than just that on the cross, but he wasn't doing less than that. He was leaving us an example in his suffering so that as we face suffering, as we face mistreatment, as we face injustice, we'll be able to respond like Jesus responded. And Jesus taught us how to live not only in his death, but also in his daily living. And so here's another passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The Apostle Paul referred to Jesus as the second Adam. Well, if you know something about your Bibles, you know that there was a man named Adam at the beginning of the Bible books, and he was the first human, and when he stumbled and fell, when he rebelled against God, we have followed after him, every one of us in his wake. But Jesus came to be the second Adam, and among many things that that means, one thing that means is he came to run the race completely, to run the race well, 
He didn't stumble and fall like the first Adam did. And because of that, we can, as products of the first Adam, we can look at our second Adam and we can see how we ought to live this human life, how we ought to behave, how we ought to respond, the attitudes that we ought to hold. And so as we look at Jesus and we see how he treated outcasts, we can copy him. As we look at Jesus and see how he handled power, we can copy him. As we look at Jesus and see how he treated the opposite sex, we can copy him. As we look at Jesus and see how he handled bitterness and disappointment and setbacks, we can copy him. As we look at Jesus and see how he prayed and how he depended on scripture, we can copy him and on and on it goes. In today's passage, we just see one more instance that reminds us that he entered into our life to live our kind of life so that we can follow after him. He became one of us so that we could become everything that we are supposed to be. So in today's passage, we find some things that we hear as long as we position ourselves near the cross of Jesus. That's the first line in verse 25 that Nora read to us. Near the cross of Jesus, these people stood and they heard certain things. And as we stand near the cross of Jesus, we can hear certain things. We can hear about a family to belong to. We can hear about an inspiration to rise to. And here's a third thing to write down. Near the cross of Jesus, we hear about a salvation to come to. In John chapter 19, verse 30, we read that the, th the third of Jesus' last words from the cross were these. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, as I mentioned before, these words of Jesus are brief and economical for a reason, because he's gasping at this point. He's, he's, he's dying not just by blood loss, but by asphyxiation. He's gasping at this point. And so in, in Greek, it's just one word, to telestai, finished. Now, what was he referring to when he said finished? Well, it could be that he said this drink that I'm drinking is finished. They had put this wine vinegar, this sort of cheap form of wine onto a sponge and lifted it to his lips. And I'm sure it was welcome. He, 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 he drank it. And maybe that's what he was saying, right? No, it was more than that. Maybe what he was saying, because this is the last words that John records before he dies, maybe he was saying, I'm washed up. I'm through. My life is over. I'm a failure. No, that's not the reason he says it is finished. What he was saying was, it is accomplished. It is completed. What he and the Father and the Holy Spirit had determined to do before the world began, according to Scripture, now had been accomplished on the cross. Your salvation, my forgiveness, accomplished on the cross. And Jesus says as his last word to telestai, finished, accomplished. And that's a good word entirely. Now that's how the writer of the book of Hebrews understands things. Uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, he says over and over again a phrase, again and again, once for all, once for all. So we read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. The writer of the book of Hebrews understood it this way because Jesus understood it this way. When he died on the cross, he said, finished, accomplished, completed. 
and people who know something about uh, uh, language, and in this case, the English language, they know that this is said in the, in the past perfect or the pluperfect. And what that means is anytime you speak in this way, you're speaking about something that has been accomplished in the past, but still has ongoing, continuing relevance for today. You know, it, it, it wasn't just something that was done in the past and is, remains in the past. It's something that is done in the past that is still abiding, still relevant for today. And so when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, it has been accomplished, it has been finished, and is still abiding, it's still relevant, it's still meaningful for today. That's the way Jesus understood it. That's the way the writer of the book of Hebrews understood it. And this is a salvation that you and I should come to. Now, when I say that this is something you and I should come to, what am I talking about? Well, in, in, in one sense, in a practical way, you come to this salvation for the first time by opening up your heart to Jesus, by recognizing that standing before God at the end of time, as all of us will, by your own merits, by your own wits, there's not going to be anything that will qualify you before God. But you come to this salvation where Jesus says it is accomplished, it is finished. You trust in what he has done for you. That's how you come to this salvation. But when I talk about coming to this salvation, I don't mean just coming to it one time and then you're done. But coming and abiding there. Coming and staying near the cross of Jesus. It's very important for all of us. Most of us in this room, most of us who are listening online are believers and all of us have had that moment from time to time where after some failure, yet another failure, we thought, well, God gave me a second chance, but I blew it. God's kicked me out of his kingdom now for sure. There was some point somewhere along the way where I believed that God could really love somebody like me, but I don't believe it anymore, not based on the things that I've done. How could he continue to love somebody like me? We've all felt like that before. And if that's the case, then what we need to do is get near the cross of Jesus and hear him say again, finished, accomplished. I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's an interesting little detail of archaeologists. Archaeologists have unearthed several uh, papyri fragments with this very Greek word on it, telestai. But I'm not talking in this instance of papyri fragments of the Bible. I'm talking about fragments of just common, ordinary, daily documents that, you know, ordinary Roman citizens would have used. Archaeologists have found tax documents that indicate how much tax is left that somebody owed, or bank documents that indicates how much somebody still owed on a loan they had gotten from another person. And yet the archaeologists have found on those documents one word, to telestai. They have found on that that some Roman official wrote that word on that tax document to Telestai. It is finished. Nothing else needs to be paid on this. They have found on these bank documents where it indicates just the payment that somebody's made month after month or year after year. And then some bank official has written that word to Telestai. It is finished. This is the exact word that Jesus uh, declared from the cross as he died. It is accomplished. It is finished. And so as we come to the cross and as we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we need to trust that our failures, our flaws, our sins have stamped over them the word that Jesus declared from the cross. It is finished. It is accomplished. We need to believe the facts of that, but we need to rest in the truth of that 
If you want joy, if you want obedience, if you want worship, if you want confidence, there's only one wellspring from which all of that comes up. It is entrusting that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished, it is accomplished, it is completed on the cross. So in today's passage, we discover things that we can only hear as we are positioning ourselves near the cross of Jesus. We hear so many things from other sources that we position ourselves next to. We position ourselves next to social media influencers. We position ourselves next to our favorite uh, news commentators. We position ourselves next to uh, various entertainment personalities. And we hear words there, and those words can sometimes bring us to bitterness or to depression or to anxiety. But if we position ourselves like John and Mary and the other women, if we position ourselves next to the cross, we'll hear these words Jesus said when he was dying, and that will help us in our living. Back in the mid-1800s, a woman named Elizabeth Cecilia Salafane must have been reflecting on today's passage of Scripture when she wrote a hymn that began with this stanza, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I fain would take my stand. That word fain means I gladly. So she was saying, beneath the cross of Jesus, I gladly take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way from the burden of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. That's my invitation to you, to gladly take your stand near the cross of Jesus and here in his dying, words that will help you in your living. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, keep me near the cross. I confess that I have set myself near to other things and heard other words that have shaped my life. But today I commit to position myself near your cross and find life from your dying words. Help me to find my family, my real family, my forever family among those who believe in you. Help me to see your life as the pattern for my life. You lived my life in all its pain and all its trial and all its challenges, and yet you remained confident in the Father, uh, assured of the Father's plan. I want to be like that. And help me to live confident and joyful in the truth that you finished, that you accomplished my salvation with your sacrifice. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. This concludes our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Join us next time as Dr. Goodman shares a sermon titled, A Personal Decision, A Public Commitment. I'm your host, John Parker, and this has been Hillcrest To Go. For more information, please contact us at hillcrest.church.